0: Hello, my name is uh, Ron Spellman. I'm going to be reading our scripture this morning, which is found in uh, Luke chapter 19. I'll be reading verses 11 through 28, if you all would like to turn and read through with me. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. that they might know what that he might know what they had gained in by doing the business the first came before him saying lord your mina has made 10 minas more and he said to him well done good servant because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over 10 cities and the second came saying lord your mina has made 5 minas and he said to him you are to be over 5 cities Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money in the bank at my coming? I might have... Collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And then he had, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem.
1: A big thank you to those who hosted uh, for D now this weekend. Uh, Blessings uh, on on that wonderful endeavor. Um, I think, as you guys know. I have four children, two of them are in the the youth now, but they're all about two and a half years apart, which means as one kid is leaving a stage of life, I have another one coming right behind them. So we have been in the teaching kids how to read stage for about 10 years, which means I have been reading early readers for a decade. Um, we're, we're almost through. We're on our last one and she's almost got it. She's, she's a pretty good reader but she's got a ways to go. I, mean, I have read a lot of Dr. Seuss uh, over these last few years. I'll tell you what, Green Eggs and Ham, I can read that thing. I can read it fast. Now Fox and Socks, that's tricky. Luke likes to lick lakes. That one gets me fleas and trees, breezing, freezing, cheesy, whatever. That one's tough, uh, but I'm doing pretty well in Fox and Socks. Uh, but Cat in the Hat, now there's a classic, right? Cat in the Hat is a classic Dr. Seuss tale. How's the story go? So you've got these two kids, brother and sister. Mom leaves and leaves them home alone, and then mayhem ensues. And it's all kinds of crazy, and they start to panic because mom's on her way home. The cat leaves and they're really freaking out, but the cat is a good cat. He cleans up his playthings, and then mom comes back, and Cat in the Hat ends like this. Let's see if I can read it. Then our mother came in, and she said to us, two, did you have fun? Tell me, what did you do? And Sally and I did not know what to say. Should we tell her the things that went on there that day? Should we tell her about it? Now, what should we do? Well, what would you do if your mother asked you. Man, that is a great way to end the story of mayhem, right? And uh, I hope my kids close their ears for a second. The truth of the matter is, they could have gotten away with it. They could have gotten away with it. So what, what would they do? So this is a great opportunity if you are teaching your children about integrity to say, hey, you know what, you got to just fess up. You got to just say what happened. Even if you could get away with it, it's a great opportunity to, to teach them the right thing to do. Now, I know that each one of us as parents, our great desire, our great desire is for our kids to behave and conduct themselves in a manner that is consistent with us being present even when we're gone. Can I get an amen? We just want them to live like we were always there. Okay, And then we pray that the Holy Spirit's conviction is enough that if they don't live like they should, that they, that they tell us, so that they, they rat on themselves. That's what my dad used to say, that they would just rat on themselves, tell themselves, so that we could help parent them through this. But all of us want our kids to do the right thing, even when we are not there. So today we're going to look at the parable of the ten menas, which uh, Ron just read for us. Now, the parable has some interesting parallels to the cat in the hat, uh, if, you, if you really stop and think about it. So the mom leaves and comes back, and And these kids know that they are held accountable for what happens while mom is gone. Similarly, in this parable uh, that Jesus is talking about, this nobleman is leaving and he's going to return as a king. And all those he leaves behind are accountable for what they did while the king was gone. Now, here's the biggest difference, the biggest difference between Jesus' parable and the cat in the hat is when we ask the question, what should we do? When should we ask the question, what should we do? In the parable of the ten minutes, uh, when the king returns, it's too late to ask, what should we do? Jesus' whole point is that we need to ask the question, what should we do while the king is gone? Okay, we ask that question while the king is gone because when he returns, it's too late. Have you been about the king's business while he was away or not? And the proof of whether or not you've been about the king's business is found in the return on his investment. So the whole point of this parable is to challenge his followers with the question How will you live? While I am away. So that's what Jesus is after. He wants to teach them to ask the question how will you live while I am away? Last week we stepped away from our study in Luke and we had a wonderful opportunity to have a mission report. Uh, But if you can think back just a little bit further into Luke chapter 19, uh, we've seen that Jesus has been in the city of Jericho for a while. Uh, And so our, our passage today picks up at the conclusion at the events uh, that happened at Zacchaeus' house in the city of Jericho. Now, the city of Jericho is on its way to Jerusalem. This is the last stop uh, before Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry as he comes into Jerusalem. So when when Luke talks about Jesus heading toward Jerusalem, this is his way of talking about uh, Jesus heading toward the cross. So as he's heading toward Jerusalem, we're getting closer and closer to the events of the cross. But while he's in Jericho, this last stop, we saw a blind man receive his sight. And all the while, while this uh, miracle's about to happen, we had got the crowd around this blind man telling him to be quiet. And still the blind man yells out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then what happens? Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. And he, uh, while he's there or on his way there, what do we hear? A bunch of grumbling, right? This crowd of people doesn't like the fact that Jesus is going to the house of a sinner. Yet, what happens when Jesus goes there? Zacchaeus believes and he repents by giving up much of his wealth. Then we move into our passage today, which begins with verse 11. And verse 11, talks about they. We get reintroduced to they. So who are they? Uh, This this they here mentioned is going to include those very people who told the blind man to be quiet, who grumbled about uh, Jesus going to the sinner's house. But it's going to include more than just that. This is going to include the, uh, the, the the bigger following that Jesus had, people who were curious about him. Is he the Messiah? Maybe he's the Messiah. What's he going to do next? What's going to happen next? It, it included those who did believe Jesus was the Messiah, but maybe aren't the 12. They were, they were close to Jesus. They were following him, the bigger group of disciples, and it included the 12 themselves. So we have a whole smattering of different people following Jesus, trying to figure out who he was and trying to figure out what his next move was going to be. Because if he was Messiah, he's in Jericho. Next stop, Jerusalem. Something awesome is about to happen. Is this going to be the time when he finally sets up his throne? So what? What? how does the, the, the passage continue? It says as they, these people, heard these things. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, what did they just hear? What's the context here of Jesus telling this parable? Well, just look up one verse in your Bible to to verse 10. And what this does is this reminds us of the purpose of Jesus' ministry. And what does Jesus say the purpose of his ministry is? One verse earlier in verse 10, Jesus says that the Son of Man has come, to seek and save the lost. So as they heard these things, they heard the mission of Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. What have we seen so far? Just in this immediate context, we've seen Jesus' compassion on the blind man. We've seen his compassion and love for the sinner and the tax collector. And he says, salvation has come to this house about Zacchaeus. Now he's on his way to Jerusalem. It's time for him to make the sacrifice that's needed for their salvation. It's time for him to make a way to salvation through his death and resurrection. But the problem is that's not what the crowd was looking for. They were ready for Jesus to come in and set himself up as a king. They thought this was the time when he was going to maybe overthrow Rome or establish himself, lead some kind of rebellion. It says this in verse 11. They supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They were looking for some kind of physical, earthly kingdom right now. Except that's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus tells them the parable of the ten minas as an explanation of what was really about to happen. Jesus was about to die. He was about to raise from the dead and then ascend into heaven. He was about to be gone. He wasn't going to bring the kingdom with him the way they were expecting now. That wasn't going to happen until he came back. So now this the king was about to leave and come back with his kingdom. The question then becomes... How do we live in between? How do we live between Jesus' ascension and the second coming and his return when he comes with his whole uh, glory and the kingdom with him? So as we think about this parable, we need to remember what we've learned about the kingdom of God as we've moved through the book of Luke. Okay, so Jesus brought the kingdom of God with him when he came to earth. Remember what we read a few weeks ago that when he was talking to the Pharisees? He said, the kingdom is in the midst of you. He brought it with him. There was one sense where the kingdom came with Jesus. And we're even going to see that next week as we look at the triumphal entry, he came into Jerusalem as a conquering king. He came in as a conquering king. So the kingdom of God has come. But it's only come in one sense. The kingdom as a a physical, fully realized kingdom wasn't, wasn't quite time for that to happen yet. That was, that was coming. So, Jesus is going to depart to another land to receive that final, fully realized kingdom, and then he was going to return in and with that kingdom. So, how will we live while he's away? How will we live this, in this in between season between the resurrection and the second coming? As we look at this parable, we need to see, see it as a metaphor. Uh, that Jesus is leaving for his disciples. He's, he's giving them a charge while he's gone. Let's reread the parable one more time, kind of with this setting in mind. We're going to pick up in verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. I just want you, if you've got your pencil or pen or whatever, I want you to underline that. This is a huge, huge purpose of what's going on in this this parable. Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom... So he received the kingdom, amen? Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, do you see the connection back up to verse 13? Engage in business. They've now engaged in business, and he wants to see what's happened. He was gone. He's returned. Verse 16. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten, ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minnas. And he said to him, And you were to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you "'because you are a severe man. "'You take what you did not deposit "'and you reap what you did not sow.' "'He said to him, "'I will condemn you with your own words, "'you wicked servant. "'You knew that I was a severe man, "'taking what I did not deposit "'and reaping what I did not sow. "'Why then did you not put my money in the bank? "'And at my coming, "'I might have collected it with interest.' "'And he said to those who stood by, "'Take the minna from him "'and give it to the one who has ten minnas.' "'And they said to him, "'Lord,' He has ten minutes. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, I wanted to take a second to read that whole parable for a second time because I wanted us to catch the symbolism that Jesus is giving us. Now, as we've moved through the the parables of Jesus through the book of Luke, I've told you guys several times, we have to make sure that the the meaning we take from the parable is the meaning that Jesus intended. And we also said that not everything that Jesus presents in a parable is necessarily going to have some kind of huge symbolic meaning. So if we want this parable to stand on its own, however, the way that Jesus intended... I believe that there is a lot of symbolism in this particular parable. So I think as we move through this passage and unpack that symbolism, the meaning of the parable is going to come uh, a lot more clear. So let's go ahead and, and break this particular parable down and see if we can begin to see the symbols. Okay, so who's the nobleman? Who's the nobleman? Right off the bat, I hope we understand that this nobleman is Jesus, that he has come in his first kingdom, and I kind of like how he's using himself as a nobleman here, still, you know, important guy. Uh, but he's going to go away, and when he's going to return, he's going to return as a king, bringing in the second kingdom, or bringing in the, the kingdom in its full consummation in his second coming. So that's, that's who the nobleman is it's, it's Jesus. Then there are the servants that receive these minna. Okay? Now, these servants are the disciples. Now, when I say disciples, don't think the twelve. Think any true follower of Jesus. Now, the reason I think it's any true follower of Jesus, and not just the 12, is the fact that there's 10. If, there was, if he was meaning the 12, he probably would have said 12. He could have said 12, but he said 10. So I think 10 here is supposed to be this generalization of all those who truly follow him, his followers, okay? That's who the, the ones who receive the mina are. And then there are those who are simply called citizens. Now, this can be tricky because of the way we've been talking about citizens of the kingdom as we've gone through the Luke study. What I don't want you to think is that this is citizens of God's kingdom. Okay, This is citizens of this community. These citizens are not believers. How do we know they're not believers? Well, because they said they don't want the king to reign over them. So these are the people around who have rejected the authority of the king. Okay, so these are, the, these are non-believers that are there. So Jesus says the nobleman's going to go on a journey to a faraway land. And that journey to a faraway land is the period of time between his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and his second coming, which hasn't happened yet. So while he's gone, he gives a deposit of one minna to ten of his servants. Now, a minna is simply a large amount of money. It's, uh, it's about 100 days wages, okay? So this is something of great value. Now, what does this minna mean? What is it? Now, this is what I believe the minna is. We should understand this as the deposit of the gospel in the hearts of his followers. What's, what is a minna? It is the true testimony of who Christ is. It is the message of the gospel. I think, I think Paul uses similar language around this idea of a deposit in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, I happen to think that it's the deposit of the gospel independent of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, but I love the way Paul talks about the deposit of the gospel in 2 Peter 1, and I think it happens to fit very well. So let's go ahead and look at 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, and you'll see the similarities between the way Paul talks about the gospel and the way Jesus seems to present this minna in Luke 19. Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purposes, purpose and grace. Just stick your finger there for a quick second. His own purpose. I want you to think about that in terms of the business of the master, right? So the master calls us to engage in his business while he's gone. Here Paul talks about how we have been saved because of the purposes of Jesus. But, uh, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What's the message of salvation? The gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And what's that day? It's the second coming. That's the return of Jesus. Okay? Verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What's the good deposit entrusted to you according to Paul in 2 Timothy 1? It's the message of the gospel. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the way to salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the good deposit. The hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. I love how Paul actually calls it the good deposit. It helps draw those lines uh, very well. So when we think back to Luke, when we think back to uh, where we are and how this all started, remember what the, the people, uh, uh, the way Luke introduces this passage. He says, they have heard these things. What are these things? That Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. That salvation had come to the home of Zacchaeus, the sinner. So what is the message? What is this thing that they've heard? What they re- it's who Jesus is. It's the gospel. It's all the ways that Jesus has been revealed. Okay? So when we think about this idea here of of who Jesus is and the gospel that's been entrusted to us, and we think about verse 13, that he gives them the minna, the gospel, in our hearts, the message of salvation, and he says to be about my business we should see that, or be about business, yeah, to to do the business of the kingdom. When when he says that, we should be thinking here, this is how we use the, the message of the gospel of salvation in between his ascension and his second coming. Okay? What happens in between? All right, so, when we think about this parable in its place and in its setting, we see three ways that we're supposed to, not supposed to, there are three ways to wait There are three ways to wait for the return of the master. There's only one way we're supposed to, okay? Just jump into the end, one way you're supposed to, there's three ways to wait. Okay, so the first way that we wait for the return of the master is faithful stewardship of the deposit left by the master. Faithful stewardship. That's that's one way to wait. And the next way to wait is unfaithful stewardship. The third way to wait is... Rejection of the master's authority altogether. Okay, those are the ways we can wait. Those are your options. All right, let's look at the first way to wait for the return of the master. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time uh, remaining. Okay, the first way to wait for the return of the master is faithful stewardship of the deposit. And what's the deposit? The gospel. All right, so let's look again at chapter 19, verses 5 through 19. 15 through 19, sorry. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, "'Lord, your minna has made ten minnas more.' And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful and very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minnas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Okay, so the faithful steward is doing the business of the master. What's the faithful steward do? The business of the master. I want you to think about the idea of stewardship. Stewardship says, it's not mine, it's not for me, it's for the one that I, I am an ambassador for, or who am I'm representing. It's not about them doing their own business, it's about the master. So when, when the master says, go and do business, here's the deposit, he's saying, go do what I would do. Be about my business. Now, We know these are are faithful servants of the master by the result. What's the result? How do we know they were about the business of the master? Well, the result says they they received a a 1,000% or 500% the return on investment. Now, what I don't want us to do is get hung up in the idea of these numbers, that at the end of the day, it's about you know, getting 10 times or five times the the return. That's not not what it's about. What these numbers are is hyperbole here showing us that they were diligent in the work. There's no way to get a 1,000% return on your investment unless you're at, that doesn't happen by accident. You've got to be about the business. You don't get a 500% return on your investment by just sitting around. You've got to be about it. What this is supposed to show us is active participation in the master's business. So when we think about this, how are we supposed to be conducting ourselves? If we're asking the question, how should we live between the period of his ascension and his second coming? The answer is, we're supposed to be about his business. So look back at that verse, verse 9 from our 2 Timothy chapter one passage. Verse 9, it says this It says, Who saved us and called us to a calling, not because of our own works, but because of His own purpose. Whose purpose? His purpose. Whose purpose are we to be about? His purpose, the Master's purpose. Pur- purpose. Whose business? His business. That is what He has called us to. He has saved us not because of our works, but for His purpose. That means He's putting us to work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As followers of Jesus, we need to be about the Master's business. So, what is his business? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Now, This particular parable doesn't elaborate too much on what his business is. If we go back up to verse 10, we can see that it's to seek and save the lost. But I think that that's only part of it. So we're going to look at a couple other passages real quick to to shape a little bit about what it means to be a part of the master's business. So John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, records Jesus' teaching to his disciples when he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we could have a whole another sermon here on what Jesus means by the work that I do. Now, if we look at the book of Acts... I think that would tell us that that would include supernatural miracles. But again, there's a whole lot of nuance to unpack there, and it would just take a long time to, to get deep into that. So I don't want to, to, to go down the rabbit hole of all that it could mean. I want us to focus on the minimum that it does mean. Okay, at minimum, at minimum, we should see this as the work. Uh, we should see this work as the way that he conducted his earthly ministry. At minimum, we should see this work as the way that he conducted his earthly ministry. So when Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, that's clearly his way of saying, you should be about my business. You should be doing things the way I do them. If we look at the story of just uh, Jesus' time in Jericho, what do we see? We see Jesus have compassion for the blind beggar. Right, He saw him, and he loved him, and he had compassion on this poor, blind beggar. But we also see him have compassion on Zacchaeus, this rich, successful sinner. What's that tell us? That Jesus is one who loves and has compassion on those who were in need. He sees them where they are, and his heart goes out to them. He loved them even while they were against him in the the sense of of Zacchaeus, and as we know from Romans chapter 5. So a big part of what it means to be about the father's business is to love the way he loves, to have compassion the way he has compassion. But I also think this includes his character. If we're going to be about the master's business, then we should conduct ourselves the way the master conducts business, with high character. Now, let's, uh, what I want to do uh, is take a peek at Matthew chapter 5 and the way that Jesus discusses character, his high ethical standard as revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, as you move through chapter 5, you see that Jesus discusses the relationship between anger and murder and the relationship of lust to adultery. Part of that portion of the Sermon on the Mount also includes this passage from chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verses 43 through, through 48. I want to read this to you as we get our head around what it means to be about the business of the Master. He says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus says be about the master's business, I think one of the things he's telling us is we need to follow his model in love. We need to follow his example of love. And like I said a second ago, what does Romans 5 tell us? That even while we were his enemies, he died for us. Now he's on his way to the cross, right? He's on his way to Jerusalem. And what does he say when he's hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them. But they know not what they do. His character is one of him loving even those who are hard to love, loving even those who are opposed to him. If we're going to follow the master and be about his business, we have to love even when it's hard. Not just when it's easy. Yeah, tax collectors do that. The Gentiles do that. He's calling us to something more. And he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or many of, your, uh, many of your translations might say, be holy, as your Father's holy. What's Jesus mean? As followers of Jesus, we are on this lifelong journey of being conformed more and more and transformed more and more into the one we follow. Right? Now, we, he is, he's sanctifying us. That means he's setting us apart. He's making us holy more and more each day as we follow him, as we do what he does, as he loves the way he loves, as we model his character, all these things. He's stripping away the old man, and we see the master come through more and more. And this is a journey that continues our whole life as we follow Jesus until the kingdom comes. Oh, until his glory comes, and in his second coming, we are glorified. We are made perfect, and this holiness that he's bringing about in us is finally realized in his kingdom as we get to be with the king. Oh, man, this is happening within us. So if we are going to be about the business of the master, we should love the way he loves. We should have compassion the way he has compassion. And we should be holy the way he is holy. Constantly dying to the old man of sin and being renewed day by day to become more and more like the one we follow. Now we have to be careful. Okay, We have to be careful here. When we, when we start talking about being about the master's business while he's gone, I don't want us to make up a bunch of rules where now it's about checking a list. And we become the new Pharisees that say, if we just check all the boxes off the list, if we just do all the things we're supposed to do, if it's about all these procedures, then poof, we're being about the master's business. The master's business is a business of the heart. It's not just a business of procedure. I think it includes procedure, but if we start with the do's and not with the heart, then we miss the point. It is about a change of heart. That's why in Matthew 5, he goes beyond just do not murder to don't get angry. He goes beyond don't commit adultery to don't lust because he wants us to get at the heart of what it means to have a heart like the master. What do we do between his ascension into heaven and his second coming? We follow him. We follow him. I think about the time when, when Peter uh, was called away from his nets. He says, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. A fisher of men. What does that mean? He was inviting Peter into his work. What's that mean Peter's, or Jesus' work was? Jesus was also a fisher of men. What did we just see uh, 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 when he was at Zacchaeus' house that his work was? His mission, his purpose is to seek and save that which was lost. What's it mean to be about the the business of the master? Part of our job as being about the business of the master is to seek and save the lost. That's part of our job too. If we're going to follow him, we're going to do what he does. We're going to share the message of the kingdom coming, just like Jesus did, that salvation is found in the King. Jesus Christ, who was on his way to Jerusalem to die for these people, raised from the dead for the forgiveness of their sins. They have life in him, and he's going to come back, and he's going to make all things new. That's how we live as we wait for the king to return. But there's still this second way to live while the master's away. We got time. This third servant is unfaithful, unfaithful with the deposit received from the master. Now listen to the exchange between the third servant and the master. Starting in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said, Lord, he has ten minas." I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So what did this servant do? This servant took the deposit for himself. He hid it away. He didn't let it out. Now, some will debate whether or not this person is saved. They will wonder if he was a true Christ follower. The deposit is taken away. So some might wonder, is this a loss of salvation? Is Jesus saying that this servant was never really a servant because he didn't act in the interest of the king? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, but but I lean toward the interpretation that says this third servant is still a believer. But this servant is missing out on an eternal reward and an eternal opportunity. Right, I say that because Jesus never places this servant with the citizens who he's going to bring under judgment next. Okay? He doesn't seem to lump them into that. What we do see is a servant who understands the nature and character of his master, yet does not walk in that belief. In fact, the master uses his own logic against him to show him how the servant should have lived in his absence. So here's the, here's the big takeaway. Okay. Here's what I need you to see about this second service, servant. It's unacceptable. This is the wrong way to do it. I don't know if he's saved. I don't know if he's not. But no matter what, what I can say for certain is he's wrong. So what's he wrong with? The deposit. What's the deposit? The hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel. He's not being about the Father's business, the Master's business. Ron Spellman and I were talking about this beforehand. He, he said, uh, I think this means that, that you can't be a pew sitter. And I said, Ooh, I might steal that. Uh, so here you go. At least I credited him, right? Uh, we can't be a pew sitter, we don't just come to church and sit. Our relationship with the master cannot merely be taking the gospel and putting it in a handkerchief by coming to church each Sunday or Wednesday. There is participation in the kingdom. If you're not growing and you're reflecting of the business of the master and the way you conduct yourself and sharing the gospel, then you're wrong. You're wrong. There is an expectation, church, That as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a servant of the master, that we engage in the master's business. If you're not engaging in the master's business, Jesus calls you a wicked servant. I'm thinking about putting that on a t-shirt. Don't be a wicked servant. Sign up. No, I wouldn't do that to you guys. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, But I want you to think about that. Okay, And when I made that joke about signing up to serve here in the church, that's only one way. That's only one way. This is a character that's being conformed to the image of Christ. This is that heart change transformation. This is living the way that Jesus lived. This is growing in holiness. This is seeking and saving the lost. This is having compassion. This is loving our enemies. This is what he's called us to. If you're not doing those things... This is not me. This is the word of God. He calls you a wicked servant. Do you want to be a wicked servant? That's pretty heavy. The answer here is not work harder. The answer here is follow the master. The answer is be like the master. Quit, quit defending your own authority and submit to the master. Ooh, man, we don't like the idea of having a boss. We don't like the idea of having someone tell us what to do. We have a perfect boss in Jesus Christ. We have a perfect master in Jesus Christ who's not a hypocrite, who practiced what he preached, who lived what he's called us to. We have the joy and the privilege of participating in the kingdom. A citizen in the kingdom of God has the opportunity to participate in the ministry of God. This is not some, th- just, just change that perspective a little bit. This is not a bunch of have to's to earn your keep. We're saved by his grace. We're not earning our salvation. It's a response to the citizenship. We get to participate in the ministry of the king. What a glorious thing. This is not a a curse. Work is cursed. We've talked about that. Kingdom work is a blessing. This is God redeeming, redeeming this world as he gives us blessed work as participants in the kingdom of heaven. We get to do what he did. He calls us to be about his business. If you don't want him to be your king and authority, there is a third way to wait for the king's return. These citizens outwardly reject the master's authority. This is a pretty serious place to be. So as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about the crimes of treason and sedition. When we think about treason and sedition against our government, it's active, not passive. I think sometimes we think that resisting God's authority is passive. I want you to see that it is active. Let's look at two verses that describe these uh, people around uh, the master who reject his authority. Verse fourteen says, "But his citizens hated him and sent delegations after him, saying, 'We do not want this man to reign over us.' You see that language? It's active. They sent a delegation after him, saying, 'Active denial. We don't want him to reign over us.' Look at verse twenty-seven, the end. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them bring them here and slaughter them before me that is heavy language go back to where we were a few weeks ago as we talked about the judgment of God here's what I I don't want you to miss his second coming is hope for those who are saved and it's judgment for those who reject his authority here's the other thing I want you to see Did their desire to be under God's authority, the king's authority, change the fact that they were under his authority? It did not. They rejected his authority, and they're still under his authority. Their feelings about the king's authority are irrelevant. because he's the one who makes the order and he's the one who has them judged. Our view that we can determine whether or not we're under God's authority is a myth. That's very unsettling. But this is the king. And he lays it before us. How are you going to wait? He gives us an invitation to joyously participate in the business of the kingdom. Or you can reject his authority. And if you reject his authority, you're still under his authority. And judgment is still going to come to those who reject the king. That is a tough reality. But it is a good thing. Because the kingdom of God is a good thing. It is for our good and for his glory. And he has invited us in. Not only has he invited us in, he has made a way for salvation. He is on his way to Jerusalem to be slaughtered by these very people who reject his authority. He died the death that we should die that by faith in him and his resurrection, we can be saved. So we can't sit here and say this is unfair. He literally received the judgment on himself that is due a traitor. But the grave could not hold him because he is the king, the giver of life. And though we deserve a traitor's death, by grace he has saved us. And called us to him. That we could have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So the question is, how are you going to live in the in-between? Are you going to be about the Father's business? Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I pray that you would um, just allow your word to penetrate our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be changed and transformed to be more and more like you. Father, I pray that uh, if there are those here who don't know you, they would recognize that your authority is final. And they would see that you haven't returned yet and there is still time to believe. There is still time for salvation to come to their house just like it did to Zacchaeus's. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in the hearts of those it needs to. Father, there are many here who have been pew sitters, who have not been participation, have not participated in the business of the master. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts to help us see what you've called us to do, to see who you've called us to be. And by the gift of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in Those works that you have prepared in advance for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we sing these.